my joy to be here. I was talking to uh, Joe just before and was saying how excited I am always to interact with college students, really for one reason, and that is that when I look out at a rim like this and see uh, young people who, Lord willing, have the best part of their lives ahead of them, I'm excited to think of the potential that exists in this room to glorify Christ. Um, J.C. Ryle, in his little book, Thoughts for Young Men, he writes a sentence that really impacted me when I read it. He said, what you are today most likely is what you will be. What you are today most likely is what you will be. And what he's saying is that right now you're setting patterns and trajectories for the rest of your life. You're making decisions now that are in some way forming the person you will be 50 years from now. And when I think about that and how you have the privilege of being at the Masters University and people are pouring into your life, willing that you would make decisions for the glory of Christ, I think about a room like this in 50 years and how much glory and honor might be given to the Lord through your lives. And so it's a real joy for me to open up God's word with you this morning. Uh, please turn to Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at just those first three verses of Mark's Gospel. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 1, 2, and 3, the Word of God reads, The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Introductions are important. Beginnings matter. Introductions are important. Beginnings matter because to some degree what happens in an introduction sets the expectations for everything that follows. I was very grateful for Harry's introduction of me this morning. He said some kind words, and I was grateful. Why? Because to some degree, that sets your expectations for what happens when this funny little British guy starts speaking on the stage. I think about a composer writing a symphony. What he does in those first few lines of music are so important because to some degree, he's setting the precedent for the rest of the symphony. The opening night to... The Olympic Games, it's a matter of great importance into which is invested so much time and energy and money. Why is that opening night so important? Because for some reason that is setting the agenda and the hopes and the expectations for the rest of those games. In verses 1, 2, and 3 of Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, He's introducing 
the rest of his gospel narrative. Now, it's true that more immediately what Mark is doing is that he is introducing the ministry of John the Baptist. It is true that most immediately Mark is ushering John the Baptist onto the stage, but what you need to understand is that Mark is only concerned with the ministry of John the Baptist in so much as John the Baptist points to Christ. Mark's treatment of the ministry of John the Baptist is fleeting. He quickly gets on to the person, the work, the life, the death, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And so these first three verses, while they are an introduction to John the Baptist, more holistically are they they're pointing us towards the next 16 chapters of gospel narrative. People often talk about the gospel of Mark as being very simple. Critical scholars would say that Mark has a very low estimation of Christ. He affirms a low Christology. The more and more I study the book of Mark, the more I am amazed at the profundity of the gospel narrative, the theological complexity of what he's doing in these 16 chapters, and I am assured that he has the very highest estimation of Christ. And he sets that up in these first three verses. What Mark is doing here in these first three verses is crucial to understand so as to rightly interpret the rest of his gospel. So what is he doing? Well, I'm glad you asked. Mark, in these first three verses, gives for us horizons. He establishes horizons for us. He establishes foundations. He gives us a paradigm through which to read the rest of his gospel. Specifically, Mark gives us a paradigm of judgment and of salvation. In three verses, he sets up the paradigm of judgment and salvation, and he does so in such a way that he impresses upon us, the reader, the greatness of the gospel. If you miss what Mark is doing here, then I guarantee you will ascribe to a very small gospel. If you miss what Mark does in his introduction, as he gives us this paradigm of judgment and salvation in such a way that he communicates the greatness of the gospel, then the message that you foster in your heart and the message that you live out in your life and the message that you seek to communicate to the lost will be a very small gospel. So it is so important that we lock into Mark's way of thinking, that we apply ourselves to the text, that we would not be casual Bible readers who just skim over these familiar verses, but we strive to understand the theological nuance and the complexity of his introduction so as to get this paradigm of judgment and salvation and moreover the greatness of the gospel. You want to talk about worship, it begins here. You want to talk about life transformation and holiness, it begins here. You want to talk about outreach, the salvation of lost souls, it begins here. 
So we'll organize our thoughts this morning under those two headings, the greatness of the gospel in judgment and the greatness of the gospel in salvation. Beginning then first with the greatness of the gospel in judgment, Mark says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Now look at what Mark's doing here. He's telling us the beginning of the gospel, the foundation of the gospel, begins back in the Old Testament. Very simply put, we can say that Mark is showing us that what's about to happen in these next 16 chapters is not new. It's not without theological precedent. It's already been spoken of by the prophets, and in particular, he draws attention to the prophet Isaiah. Now, with a little bit of study, we find out that these, uh, this quote in verses 2 and 3 from the Old Testament comes from three Old Testament texts. Isaiah 40, Malachi 3, and Exodus 23. And, and Mark takes those three texts and he meshes them together. And we shouldn't be concerned. He's not trying to deceive us. We shouldn't be worried. He does say it's written in Isaiah, which it is. He is quoting from Isaiah. It just so happens that he draws in two other texts, purposefully, intentionally. All Mark is doing is elevating the importance of the, the Isaianic quote. As you really engage with Mark, Mark's gospel, what you soon learn is that Mark has a particular affinity for the prophecies of Isaiah. He builds a lot of his narrative around Isaiah's theology, and so at the very beginning, he wants to show us that by simply saying, as it's written in Isaiah. But there are two other texts that he quotes from, and they're important to study. The first is Malachi 3. Behold, I send my messenger who will prepare your way. That's a quote from Malachi 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger who will prepare your way. Now, what is Mark doing as he draws from that particular prophecy? Malachi was a prophet who was speaking to the people of God after they had returned from exile. They're back in the land, they've returned from exile, and now they're in a period of waiting. They're waiting expectedly with hope, looking for the fulfillment of God's promises to his people. The exile's over, now God will fulfill his promises to us, and so they wait. And they wait. And they wait. And they keep waiting. And rather than seeing the fulfillment of God's promises, what they actually see, what they actually experience is a continued struggle through life. They continue to feel the brokenness of this life. And actually, as they look around, yet again, they would see the wicked seemingly flourish around them. And so in Malachi chapter 3, we're in the middle of this portion where the people have started to shake their fists at God and say, where is your justice? And God responds and he says, the issue is not the timing of my justice, but it is your lack of obedience. The issue is not the timing of my justice, says the Lord, but it is your lack of obedience. I will send my messenger, and he will come with a refining fire. The Lord rebukes them, and he says, my messenger is coming, and he will come with a refining, cleansing, purging fire. 
and I will deal with the wicked, but I will also deal with you who are being disobedient to my word. And it is so intense, so intense will that judgment be upon the people of God who are disobeying his word that Malachi says, who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand amidst this kind of judgment? Friends, make no mistake, when Mark begins his gospel and he quotes from Malachi 3, he is striking a solemn, sobering, resounding note of judgment. It is a minor chord to be sure, as you would hear in a funeral dirge, laying the foundation for all that is to follow, a theme of judgment that is interwoven throughout the gospel narrative. And you say, I thought the gospel was good news. The euangelion, I thought it was good news. What's all this about judgment? Friends, the gospel is good news if you receive it. But for all those that would turn their back on the gospel of Jesus Christ, it becomes an instrument of the utmost judgment. And so it is when we walk into Mark's gospel, we see straight away in verse 17, Jesus says, follow me. And I will make you become fishers of men. This is not some twee little verse about evangelism to go and save the lost. This is a verse again alluding back to the prophetic ministry when Jeremiah this time says, The Lord will send out fishermen and huntsmen. He will bring in the disobedient of Israel and he will hunt them down. This is the first indication that the disciples, as they were called in and then sent out by Jesus, were themselves having a ministry of judgment. They were to preach the gospel, and for all those that turn their back, they shake the dust off their feet as a prophetic act of judgment that one day will come on those people that refuse to accept the saving gospel. In chapter 4 of Mark's gospel, Jesus teaches in parables. These are not nice little stories to explain to us the nature of the kingdom. Jesus is very clear. The reason he is teaching in this particular way, the reason Jesus teaches in parables is so as to further harden the hearts of those that reject him. He's so clear about this. Quoting from Isaiah, he says, I'm teaching in parables so that hearing they won't hear. And seeing they won't see and their hearts would not be changed, they won't turn and they won't be healed. So just like the disciples, Jesus has an aspect of his ministry where he is pushing people further towards judgment. In chapter 9 of this gospel, he is warning them, always warning them of the impending judgment. And he says, you have to turn away from sin You must turn from sin and turn to me. And whatever it takes, it needs to happen. Why? Because of the judgment that is coming. If you need to cut off your hand to make this happen, you do it. If you need to gouge out your eyes so as to avoid this judgment, you must do it, says Jesus. And then in Mark 11, he enters the temple and he starts turning over tables. He's not cleansing the temple. Again, it's a prophetic act of judgment. He's indicating the judgment that will come upon that house, just like the fig tree that comes before and after, that will bear no more fruit. 
Jesus turns over the tables to say, we are done with you. Why? Because you were meant to be a house of prayer for the nations. And you have become a den of robbers. So now judgment is on its way. And remember, this fits into a bigger picture. The bigger narrative of Scripture. This is the judgment Jesus is warning them all the way through the Gospel of Mark. And we see it when we come to the end of our Bibles. We see that judgment played out in all of its fullness. When the Son of Man finally appears, he told them, he warned them at the trial, Are you the Christ? I am. And from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the hand of power on his throne. What does that mean? It means judgment is coming for those that reject me. And sure enough, in Revelation chapter 6, the Son of Man is there. And the Bible tells us that on that day, rich men and poor men will run and they will scream to the rocks. The, the rocks would fall and crush on them. The rocks would fall and crush them rather than have to face the king. Now, I've seen a few things. I've never seen a person scream out to a rock. Far less have I seen a person scream to a rock that the rock would crush them. But the Word of God tells me that will be what happens. Sane people, that will be their response when they understand in all of its fullness the judgment that comes about through a rejection of the king. And this is the tone that Mark establishes in verse 2 of his gospel. As he quotes from Malachi 3, he's indicating to us that the gospel narrative that follows is no small message. This is not a pedestrian gospel. This is a gospel a story of impending wrath for those that do not receive the Savior. Friends, do you know the greatness of the gospel in judgment? Is this the gospel to which you have ascribed? Have you come to terms with the greatness of the gospel as it's expressed in judgment? Because if you have not, then you know nothing of the greatness of the gospel, the splendor of the gospel, the beauty of the gospel, the gospel that you affirm and the gospel that you espouse and communicate to others is a very small gospel. If you have not set your mind and your heart to understand the greatness of the gospel in judgment, then you just have a gospel that you can fold up and put in your pocket. You have a gospel that doesn't really beckon for any real life transformation. The gospel that you ascend to does not demand any real standard of holiness, which is why your life still looks like those who are unsaved. And I guarantee you, as you go out and you try and communicate the gospel, it will be insipidly weak. You think about Outreach Week. 
engaging a lost world who so desperately need a message of salvation, you need to know the greatness of the gospel. When you affirm the greatness of the gospel, then you have a message of power. Then you have a message which is strong enough, effective, to pull people out of the depths of their sin. Don't miss what Mark is doing in verse 2 of chapter 1. On the 15th of October, 1987, a lady called in to the BBC weather station. And she said, I've heard there's a hurricane on the way tonight in southeast England. Is it true? On live television, the weather reporter scoffed at that suggestion and dismissed it out of hand. He said, there's no hurricane on the way. Some strong winds, but no hurricane. That evening, the fiercest storm that has ever hit the southeast of England raged for hours, destroying homes, vehicles, trees, and killing many people. The analysts had the information. They just ignored the warning signs. In verse 2 of Mark's gospel, he's telling us, he's setting a horizon for us of judgment in such a way so as to communicate to us the greatness of the gospel. And it is your responsibility to apply yourself to know this greatness so that your life would be transformed and you would have the true gospel to communicate to folks. And that is only one half of the story. You see, that is one part of the paradigm that Mark gives us. The second, of course, is the greatness of, God, of the gospel in salvation. He clearly shows us the greatness of the gospel in judgment, and then he moves on in verse 3 to give us another quote from the Old Testament. And here we move on to our second point, the greatness of the gospel in salvation. Now, those two other quotes, Exodus 23 and Isaiah 40, you may be thinking are unrelated. It's a bit odd that Mark goes from here in the Old Testament to over here, and he's meshing them together. Well, actually, they're very tightly linked. You see, Exodus 23 obviously comes within the context of the Exodus. When, when God draws his people out of Egypt, he forms them into the nation Israel, he opens the waters that they would walk through. He crushes Pharaoh's army. Then he provides for them in the wilderness, giving them not only food, but the law under which they were to flourish. And that then forms for us the foundation in the Old Testament for the doctrine of salvation. The Exodus event becomes for us a referent point for discussions of salvation throughout the Old Testament. And thus, when we get to the prophetic ministry, especially Isaiah, the prophets go back to the Exodus. They refer back to it as God's saving work. And as they look forward to a new horizon and they talk about another work of salvation, they say, so great and so magnificent will that work of salvation be that it will make that first event look like child's play. And Isaiah, more than anyone, talks about this second exodus. A second exodus is coming that will be so magnificent, he will not only draw people out of Egypt, but from every nation on planet Earth. 
They will come towards the seed of David, the Messiah, who will be up on a hill with a banner for the redeemed. It will be life-transforming. That first exodus will pale in comparison to the salvific work that is on its way. And so Mark draws on the Exodus 23 quote and he puts it together with Isaiah 40 to start to communicate to us something of the nature of the salvation that this gospel offers. Isaiah 40 speaks of that salvation when he says, Behold, the Lord comes with might. Behold, Isaiah says, the Lord will come with might. He will tend his flock like a shepherd and he will hold the lambs in his arms. How can he do this? Because to God, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. Who will you compare him to? The Lord is the everlasting God. He does not grow weary or tired and thus he and he alone can transform people's hearts. It is for this reason that when we get to Isaiah 60 verse 1, Isaiah says, Arise and shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Think about it in context. One chapter after another through the prophecies of Isaiah, Israel has been depicted as a hard-hearted, wicked, rebellious people. They have no love for the Lord. And so great and so powerful is the Lord God, and so effective is his work of salvation, that looking forward, he can save us. One of chapter 60, arise, Israel, and shine. Shine! For the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. And it's that kind of salvation to which Mark is alluding in verse 3 of his gospel. He's saying the next 16 chapters are the playing out of that kind of salvation. And thus we march back into the gospel narrative and we find straight away at Jesus' baptism, Mark says the heavens were torn open. They were torn open. Mark is the only gospel author to use that kind of language with reference to Jesus' baptism. Why? Because in Isaiah 64, the prophet says, Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down. He pleads for salvation and says that you would tear open the heavens and come down. And Mark says, Here is the answer to your prayer, Isaiah. Behold your salvation, the heavens have been torn open. And then immediately after, Jesus is in the synagogue and he's teaching us a new teaching with authority. Don't just read over these verses even though they're so familiar. He's teaching a new teaching with authority. And praise God that he did. Praise God he didn't only have to say what the Pharisees had said. Because if he did, then you wouldn't have a gospel and you would have no salvation. But Mark says he was teaching a new teaching and that he taught it with authority. And then he's in Simon's home and his mother-in-law is sick with a fever. Friends, you need to understand the Old Testament law said that a fever is a curse from God and it is God and God alone who can lift that fever. 
That's their understanding of what's going on. God and God alone can lift this fever, and Jesus walks in, and he takes her hand, and the fever's gone. And she gets up, and she starts to serve. And he just marches on, and he heals a leper. The Old Testament law says, don't touch a leper. Don't touch a leper. If you touch the leper, you become unclean. Heal me if you will, he says. Jesus says, I will be clean. I will, to the grace of God, be clean. Power of God. The grace of God and the power of God. And Jesus reaches out and he touches the leper. And immediately the leper is clean. Notice, Jesus does not become unclean. The leper becomes clean. All of it set for you in the Bible that you hold in your hands to speak to you about the salvation of the gospel. The greatness of the gospel in salvation. Chapter 5, Mark, Jesus comes into contact with a demon-possessed man. So fiercely possessed by demons is this man that it tells us he didn't live amongst the people. He was away in a cave. And he had shackles around his hands and his feet, metal shackles. So fiercely was he possessed by demons that over and over again he tore those apart. Jesus comes, he interacts with this man, and the crowd find him in his right mind. Completely healed. Free to live a life of righteousness, which is exactly what you were created to do. And then we have the man who walks on the water and calms the storm. Engage with the text, friends. Understand that the, the Old Testament precedence is that God and God alone has the authority and the prerogative to calm the storm and trample the waters. Job chapter 9, Psalm 107, that sets up the paradigm of their understanding. It is God that can do this. And here Jesus is walking on the water, calming the storm. So great is the manifestation of power in that boat that day that it said the disciples were terrified. They didn't derive comfort and peace from that situation because they met their maker in the boat. And then, of course, the gospel narrative marches on to the point where the Jews plot against him and the Gentiles convict him. Think about this. The Jews plot against him and the Gentiles convict him. In that picture alone, we have a representation of all of humanity. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. And so their Messiah is nailed to a cross. And the blood flows down. And in that picture, that event, salvation is wrought for all that would receive the gospel. So that when that Son of Man appears, for those that did not reject him but accepted him, became his disciple, followed and obeyed him, they will stand before him, eye to eye, face to face. They will become like him, for they shall see him as he truly is. John Stott, the late British preacher, was once asked at a conference, 
What is the irreducible minimum of the gospel? In other words, if you could boil the gospel down to one statement, one fact, what's the irreducible minimum of the gospel? And John Stott replied and he said, I'm so fed up with people trying to come up with the irreducible minimum of the gospel. I want the whole biblical gospel. Do you know the greatness of the gospel in salvation? Is this gospel the gospel that you love, the gospel that you live out, and the gospel that you proclaim? Or is it that you are fostering in your heart a very small gospel? Question today to what degree you have embraced the excellencies of Christ, to what degree you have pursued an understanding of the greatness of the gospel as it is given to you in Scripture, to what degree it has really transformed your life so that you have a message that you would proclaim that speaks of the greatness of the gospel, Friends, if all you've got is four spiritual laws, then you don't have a very big gospel. If the sum total of what you can say to someone is, that's sin, that's sin. If that's the sum total of your message, then you don't have the greatness of the gospel. You have a very small and a very weak gospel. I said at the start how excited I am to speak to people like you because of the trajectories that you might set today in your life that would live, that would result in a life well lived, a life to the glory of Christ, regardless of what profession you might pursue, regardless of what turns and twists your life might take, you make decisions today for the glory of Christ, setting trajectories that result in a life well lived. The tragedy is, so often, when I interact with folks like you, I find that you are clinging to something lesser. The heartbreaking reality is that so often I interact with college students and I find the reality is they are clinging to something lesser. And you are not embracing the greatness of the gospel. A few years ago, we were given the, the gift of a day at Disneyland. Um, we had just arrived in the country. Some friends of ours were over here in Southern California on vacation. And they contacted us and they said, we'd like to take your family to Disneyland. We were just overwhelmed. Now our kids at the time were really, really small. They didn't know what Disneyland was. They had no idea what Disneyland was. So we went, and the arrangement was we would meet this family in downtown Disney, and we would go on from there to the park. So we went, and we arrived early. We were there before the family, so we went to the Lego store. Now, my son doesn't know what Disneyland is, but he knows what the Lego store is. So we went in there, and he's just having the time of his life. He's building the Lego. His eyes are just as wide as saucers as he looks around at all the Lego. And then, of course, the family turn up. 
And they say, let's go to Disneyland. I say, Rory, let's go to Disneyland. And he doesn't want to go. I said, Rory, let's go to Disneyland. And he starts crying. <laughs> and he, the little boy is breaking his heart. And here I am, pleading with my son to go to Disneyland. Don't cling to something lesser. Don't you cling to something other than a great big gospel. A gospel which expresses the, its greatness in judgment and in salvation, embrace the greatness of the gospel, that your life would be transformed, and that you would have a powerful and effective message as you go out on Outreach Week and engage with a lost world. You need a great big gospel. Our Father, we are so thankful that you have given us no small message. You did, write, you did not write a narrative that was ineffective, but you gave us a profound gospel. A gospel the enormity of which we cannot wrap our minds around. A gospel which is so great that if we engage in it, then our hearts sing a gospel which is sufficient to save, sufficient to sanctify. I pray for all of us here that we would embrace the greatness of the gospel. That we would live lives that speak of that greatness. And we would proclaim a message that reflects that greatness. We commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name.